everybody is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into evil folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello the internet and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast, a member of the Agora Podcast Network, where we discuss political science and popular culture, as always hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Rodham. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the separation of church and state and the sixth season. The second time. The second time, because we recorded this before and it fucked up. So uh, yeah, the second time. (laughs) But we're going to be doing this through the sixth season of the Game of Thrones. And I think a little bit of the end of the fifth season, because that's when the churchy stuff starts. But before we get into that, let's do our podcaster of the month. Um, and the podcaster of the what month. That's, that's a cool voice. Okay. The podcaster of the month is the unapologetic capitalist, uh, which not many people are. Um, a lot of people are apologetic capitalists, but, um, the unapologetic capitalist is a podcast that is hosted by Alison Gerlach. Um, on the Agora Podcast Network. Um, this is a place for entrepreneurs, business executives, consultants, and anyone who is compelled by innovation and free enterprise. The Unapologetic Capitalist is a discussion to constructively explore and push the thinking on creating and building optimal business ventures. So all of you guys who are business-minded and looking to maybe do your own startup, this is probably the place for you. Go have a listen. I think it's really good. Um, but Brock... Let's get into it. Separation of church and state. But first, uh, let's, let's, let me just ask, what did you think of uh, the sixth season of Game of Thrones? I liked it. Of course, I liked it. I thought it was entertaining. But um, I resented being able to tell that the the writers were having to do their own work for a change. Oh, uh, yeah. Were certain parts of the dialogue, there was certain stuff. See, there's a bit of flatness here and there. Really? Which is annoying. But... Um, just a little bit. I don't think it's honest to show too much at all. I was still wildly entertained and I liked the twists that they added. So, uh, yeah, overall, good job. Yeah, I, I mean, I liked it. I, I, I'm probably, I don't know, I might be one of the a few people in this, but sometimes I find the dialogue in Game of Thrones a little bit tedious. Um, yes. I mean, but obviously the action scenes are always awesome and dragons and stuff, but um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe except it's... for that one stupid scene where Khaleesi's standing in a burning building. That was just too lame. Why? She's it. immune to fire. I don't like that chick. I don't like her at all. She has resistance to fire. Hundred on the you know RPG thing. It's just a hundred. Just, just the <laughs> way that she likes. She's such a strong actress. She just stood there with her hands on you know put her hands on that hot um, iron uh, brazier and then just flipped it over and just the drama of it seemed too. Contrived. Or like fabricated. Mm. Yeah, it was, it, it lacked the cool factor. Yeah, maybe, I mean, I suppose I, I did look a bit f- CGI fakey because obviously it was. I mean, you can't just put an actress in the middle of a burning building. So maybe that came through a bit. I thought that the, uh, you know, the, the huge fight scene, um, the one that Jon Snow's in was fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, and I think the yes, cinema was brilliant. Yeah. The cinematographer took Probably a lot brilliant. of, um, stuff from the revenant you know when he's following john snow like through the battle scene but it's all like the kind of over the shoulder I, camera I haven't action. seen the revenant oh yeah it's, it's but yeah i like that yeah it was really I like good that part. although really dumb of john snow to like run out in front of his whole army just like save his brother 
when I think yeah. that Davos, you know, the Onion Knight should have been just like stopped him and be like, no, dude, you're a general. Okay. You have, you have responsibilities <laughs> to the army. Just run around by yourself. Yes, we know he's your brother, but still, okay. Like Julius Caesar didn't like run around trying to save his brother. He would have been like, no, fuck you, dude. I don't care. <laughs> uh, the, the, the part that really got to me was when the, um, the, the slavers were attacking, uh, the city of, what is it, Marine? Yeah, Marine. Um, in Slavers Bay. And then somehow they managed to, you know, get the artillery fire up onto the top of the pyramid. <laughs> and then she just, and then Daenerys just sort of gives up and, uh, you know, Tyrion loses his mind. And, uh, you kind of go, well, why don't you just burn the buildings of the dragons? First, she has to go and negotiate with them. Get Worm to kill two guys. Sorry, we're giving away a lot of this plot if you haven't <laughs> oh, seen Oh, yeah, spoilers alert maybe. for everybody who hasn't seen yeah, season sorry six. about that. <laughs> And then, and then, and then waits for the, and then waits to, you know, at least the dragons on the boats. Like, why didn't you just do that when they started attacking the freaking city? Oh, cause she wanted the boats. She needs the boats to get across to, uh, Westeros. Like no, that. she didn't use the boats. She, she got, she got the boats from the two stupid Greyjoy. Yeah, people. but they don't have enough boats. Uh, there's, they need more boats. That's why she, she's using those boats as well. They're using all the boats. Well, she could have burnt a few in the meantime just to, you know, make threats. I didn't see, I didn't see the need for that. A little exchange. Yeah. Also, the, the the thing is, is that when you have dragons, it's like being the only political power that has nuclear weapons. Like, nobody can really yeah. stand up to you. So, all this kind no, of... No, there's no mutually assured destruction. Yeah. There. So, like, from a political point of view, the whole time I'm watching her, I'm just thinking, like, why do you put up with any dissidents? You have three dragons. Like, I know that you can't necessarily be everywhere at once, but, like... If you have no more than three enemies, which she doesn't, just go burn people. Like nobody can stand up to you. It's a, you've already won. Stop. Why are you worrying? Um, Why is it taking you six seasons? <laughs> but there was, I think there, there was something very interesting in this season. And that was, uh, away from Marine and that side. And that was in Westeros, which was the relationship between the Church of the Seven and, uh, the King and Cersei in King's Landing. Which, uh, immediately as soon as I started watching brought to mind the issue of, uh, the separation of church and state, um, in our own world. And so, why it's necessary. Yeah. And why it's necessary. Like why, why we have it. So I suppose the first thing to well, do. Obviously, like that's set in a more, um, I think that, that context is for, is taken out of, you know, our, our own history from yeah. before the separation of church and state was seen as a necessity. Yeah. Why don't you just tell us a bit about that history? Obviously, uh, the, uh, the separation of church and state itself is a misnomer because there's no such thing. What we're actually talking about is the separation of church and government. A state can be quite religious as long as the government isn't. So because obviously when we talk about the state and government, those are two separate things. The state being you know, the central political unit that gov- that is defined by the nationality and all of that and the government being those people who actually rule the people. So... This, the words, the separation of church and state are a little bit weird, uh, but we use them because that's what was written mainly uh, with regards to the founding of the American Constitution. Um, but in terms of, uh, so what we're actually talking about here is the separation of church stuff, uh, religious stuff, and politics stuff. We don't want those th- two things mixing together. And just a quick... No, that's not, the, that's not what we're saying. What, what, what it was? We're saying that you don't, we don't want the institutions to be... Uh, conflated and for the respective leaders to fill the same position. Yes. So a political position is not taken to, you know, be the head of a particular church. Yeah. Or, and the, you know, and a particular, and the, the 
leadership in a particular church does not entail being a political leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this is really, uh, um, I mean, it, it comes from our own history, obviously, uh, mainly from European history. Um, the separation of church and state is not a big thing in other political associations. And the reason for that is because Europe has a very unique system, um, well, it did during the uh, Middle Ages, in that you had the Pope who was considered to be the vicar of God on earth or the, you know, the representative of God on earth. Um, Brockman, the vicar of Christ. Vicar of Christ. That's, that's the one I'm, I'm thinking about. Who, yeah, it still is. Um, and the interesting thing is, is that kings in Europe ruled by something called divine right. So their claim to legitimacy, the, the idea of what transformed their power into authority, which we've spoken about a couple of times, was via episode six of us was via divinity. So God says you should rule, um, which was, you know, is very nice. Um, obviously that exists in a number of other countries. So like, for instance, one could imagine Japan or Ethiopia, where the emperor rules by divine right. But the interesting thing here is that in those countries, the emperor is also the representative of the divinity on earth. So, for instance, the emperor of Japan is not only uh, ru- not only ruling by divine right, but is also the representative of the Shinto religion on earth. In Europe, that's not the case. In Europe, the kings rule by divine right, and the pope is the representative of God on earth, and the pope theoretically has the power to denounce any king or queen that he sees he sees fit. And is able to say, nope, you don't get to rule because I said I'm the final voice. So that obviously ended up creating a large amount of power struggles between. So was it was it really that um, was it was the Pope really that powerful? Were they that bureaucratic? Because what you just described is that during the Middle Ages, the Pope was not an emperor, so they were not the representative of God on earth, but simply the you know his voice when it came to matters of religion and when the when the when the roman empire collapsed and during the dark ages um the church was able to expand both religiously and politically it gave the church political clout throughout the european continent and that meant it was able to sway certain political you know appointments and sort of use its religious power to condone or endorse uh, certain political rulers or rescind support for a particular for a particular leader or ruler if uh, if they weren't you know friendly with the church or for whatever reason but was it ever as cut and dry as being able to appoint and denounce leaders well i think it's i mean it obviously depends on which country which um which political entity and which historical period you're talking about so, for instance, directly after the fall of the European European Union, I was just about to say the fall of the European Union. <laughs> no, yeah, uh, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, direct, uh, since you know, directly after the fall of the Roman Empire, um, you know, your Frankish kings like you know uh, Clovis, you know, probably wouldn't have given that much of a shit what the Pope said because they were you know very far apart. They didn't really care that much, but. You know, a couple of centuries after that, once the Pope had established their own political power in Italy, had established their own very strong religious authority, then at that point would have been able to say to any king, um, I remove your legitimacy. I 
denounce you as king. Now, the king can obviously, because the king can call on force of arms, the king can say, well, I'm still king. But once the pope denounces that king, it kind of removes that legitimacy. And you have a problem where your people might start to think like, oh, wait, hold on. Why should we listen to what this king's saying when he's, his claim to why he should rule us is not there? And obviously this changed a lot as well when the, when the church started to set up their own political units. So what, obviously one of which was the Holy Roman Empire, which was considered to be the successor to the Roman Empire. And then, uh, different emperors were crowned directly by the Pope. So for instance, I think it was Charlemagne was the first Holy Roman Emperor. Um, now Charlemagne was the king of France and then was crowned as Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope, meaning that he was the anointed king of that territory by the Pope. And the Pope has used, used that to maintain a certain amount of political power in Europe. And, you know, Barbarossa, uh, Charlemagne, a whole bunch of p- different people were all crowned as Holy Roman Emperor. And But the thing is, is that there was always this kind of power struggle between the church and the political units of Europe in trying to wrest this claim to legitimacy away from the church. Because as you can imagine, for any king or queen of Europe to have the threat of the Pope being able to say, I'm denouncing your claim to rulership is quite a threat to your own power base. So there are different ways. Well, this yeah, is just- and just, be, just to be clear, it wasn't, to my knowledge, it wasn't a matter of bureaucratic procedures with a Pope would sign a document and that was it, you weren't king anymore. No, but the the nature of the of the church's influence throughout Europe uh, and with the people was that if the if if you as a royal ruler were not supported by the church, um, even just in you know even just in uh, in the most intangible form, um, then you were very much seen as illegitimate, and it could you know could severely threaten your claim to power. Absolutely. So, so yes, it was it was important to stay in good favor with the church, particularly the Pope as an individual. And yeah. the, and and his cohort of political and the the interesting um, thing is that this went both ways because you see you saw rulers in Europe knowing that they needed to have the church on their side sometimes creating the church that they needed so you would see uh, kings in Europe actually coming in and invading all the way up to the Vatican getting rid of whichever pope they didn't like and instilling a new pope who was more favorable to them. So there was, you know, this kind of power struggle went both ways. Um, but the, what, what I'm saying is interesting in the European context is that you had this, these two pillars of power, both operating against each other. And of course, this kind of, and, and yes, as you say, it wasn't just a bureaucratic, uh, notion of signing a document. There was, uh, you know, it was much more deep and, and, or, you know, also spiritual. There was a spirituality involved because we are talking about religious matters. But this all came to a head, you know, this slowly came to a head with the realization that um, once you start to have religious conflict, which eventually led to the Protestant, I don't want to get too far into this, but you have the Protestant Reformation that took place because of the corruption ha- taking place in the church, um, which now meant that kings and rulers could choose from two different legitimizing forces. So you had, you know, Protestantism on one side and Catholicism on the, on the other side. And then you had King Henry the eighth, 
who uh, wanted to remarry. So he formed his own church, which was the Church of England. Um, so now you have a third one. And you have these different religious aspects all vying for power, which obviously eventually led to religious war, uh, mainly the Thirty Years' War, which was a huge thing in European history because it led to the Treaty of Westphalia, of which, uh, you know, which created the modern state. But eventually what the realization well, came... Before you move off from that, yeah. don't just pass over that. The Treaty of Westphalia in constructing the modern state, uh, especially you know, the state as we see and understand it in the West, is the, the design of political office that removed the, um, the divine will or the divine uh, appointment of a ruler. So royalty now um, was no longer a good enough reason to be a ruler. You couldn't mm. say, I am king because God chose me. And I think the, the realization came about that it was a circular argument. Well, why did God choose you? Well, because I'm king. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that came to an end. And that was important because it meant that the political office then became secular, that anybody could run, that anybody could be a ruler, and that their legitimacy depended on the will of the people. Mm. And that was a, you know, that was a monumental occasion in, uh, in European history, especially in the history of the state. So yeah, like I, I would, um, I, so that re- and religious uh, rulers were kept, you know, and religious arguments for taking uh, legitimate leadership were taken out of that process. See, I agree with you. I wouldn't go as far as to say that it was by the will of the people. So we're not talking about any kind of democratic state, but it became also like families. Yeah. You, you know, the the Habsburgs were ruler were rulers by the very fact that they were Habsburgs, um, not necessarily yes. because they were ordained by God to be rulers. So. But it, but at the end of the day, yeah, you're absolutely right. I shouldn't have glossed over the fact that we had an introduce, introduction of secularism into the, you know, the Treaty of Westphalia, and also that states couldn't intervene in the religious matters of other states, which meant for the first time because the Vatican, in fact, church, uh, the states can't intervene in religious matters at all. Uh, I, it depend, I think it, at the tr- time of the Treaty of Westphalia, it depended on what type of state. Uh, so, for instance, I mean, you still had the religious persecution of, like, the Huguenots in France. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Yes, you're right. In the, in the historical context of, of that time, you're right. Yeah. yeah. It depended on the church. But nowadays, you know, oh, yeah, the circumcision of church state is meant to protect the church as much as it is yeah. to protect the state. And obviously this had a, you know, this had an evolutionary uh, process where eventually, you know, you got to the French Revolution which uh, tried to remove religiosity from the... Because obviously religion was kind of seen as, in you know Karl Marx's words, the opiate of the masses, although this was before Marx. Um, you know, it was seen as a way of holding down uh, the peasants. So, you know, the, the revolutionaries attempted to remove religiosity from the state completely, which was a dismal failure. Um, I think Oliver Cromwell tried to do a very similar thing in, in England, but... You know, these steps were taken to separate the church and the state. But I think what's very interesting here is that this was done for the for the reasons of political power. Um, whereas now our arguments are, are quite different from why we think that the church and state should be separate. But I think we'll get into that a bit later. But what we're seeing in uh, the Game of Thrones episode is kind of this power struggle, the like okay, so I'm going to go into my interpretation of what I think's going on there, and, and Brock, you can jump in and tell me if I'm being if well, I'm wrong. Yeah, I could, yeah, go on. They're just they're, so just, so just to be clear, then we're trying to you know understand the season six of Game of Thrones and the the marriage between the crown and the and the, the church. Yeah. Um, as uh, as a time 
relevant in, sorry relevant to our time in around the 1600s that's what you're trying to say well i think that i think that game of thrones is interesting because it kind of jumps what i would say it jumps from almost the 1200s all the way to the 1800s in uh, in in six months um so a very short time because if you if you watch uh, you know the and guys spoilers alert please I, okay so spoilers <laughs> If you watch the end of the fifth season, Cersei is starting to feel that her position as Queen Regent, uh, which is, you know, what she was, is being threatened by Marjorie Tyrell, uh, because Marjorie yeah. is now Queen. Um, so yeah. this, you know, the power is being concentrated back into the, into the crown, which is the way that King's Landing has run for, you know, one assumes since Robert Baratheon was crowned. Um, you know, the church doesn't have a lot of power. We've seen, we see that there's a lot of corruption in the Church of the Seven, um, with the High Septum being like, you know, visiting brothels and stuff, which apparently is not cool in that religion. Um, so what does Cersei do? Cersei realizes that there still is a lot of power within the church that is accessible. Um, if you, if you think of power as a resource, there's a pool of political power that she can access. And she makes contact with a person called the High Sparrow who comes in and she, you know, she has this kind of um, alliance with him and in return for her seizing, in return for her seizing the power of the church, well, not seizing, being given some of the power of the church, the High Sparrow is also moved in to the position of the High Septon. So in that way, we kind of see her using the power of the church and combining it with the power of the crown or the little bit that she has and using that to kind of re-seize complete power. So, so the the power that you're talking about there is the ability to to um, enact certain re- to to make use of resources that have political consequences and have those consequences deemed legitimate. So she wouldn't necessarily be held accountable. Uh, she wouldn't be called to defend her actions in a court of law. They were considered uh, legal and defendable. So she didn't have to, you know, justify them. She could, and specifically, she, we're talking about the, uh, what do we call the sparrows? The, the, uh, the, um, like the, the faith, army. The, the faith militant. Yeah, that's a brilliant name. <laughs> the faith it. militant. So she can, so she can, um, you know, accuse someone like Marjorie Tyrell of having a checkered history and that she needs to atone for her sins and be locked up until she does so. Which is exactly then what she the does. Then the faith militants can carry that out for her. Yeah. And that's the type of resource that we see enacted that um, that confuses the what you know what as modern people we understand the sep- as the separation between church and state. Exactly. That, that should not have been allowed to, to happen if that was if King's Landing was being ruled in a modern state system. Mm, and I think that that's that's the interesting point because she is she she has power. She has raw power just by the fact of, you know, of her lineage, of her position. But she has very little authority and her authority is being diminished day by day as well as yes. any. And obviously authority is just legitimate power. So she needs a way to legitimize her power uh, to become authority. And she does this through religion. Um, so in a way, you could say that religion is... Is in this context and in many contexts, religion is kind of a conversion mechanism, turning power into authority through through a, a force of legitimacy. And the reason it has that legitimacy is because it's it has a faith based component. So many people believe, and especially when we're looking at the High Sparrow, where we have a huge amount of poverty stricken people in King's Landing that uh, 
King Joffrey didn't look after because he was a little dickhead. Um, and the High Sparrow is taking advantage of that, collecting up all that faith and then using that as a, as a power base for him to, you know, for him to exercise his own authority. And Cersei taps into that in order to legitimize her own power and turn that into authority. And obviously what she does is she uses that to get, um, the Tyrells, uh, you know, she gets uh, Marjorie Tyrell arrested for, uh, I don't know what, what the actual crime is. Debauchery? Uh, you know, I think covering up her, her brother's, um, gay. Yes, I think it was covering up for, yeah. for her brother. So she get, and then the brother obviously also gets arrested. Um, so that all goes down. And Cersei thinks that she's now in a good position because she now has the king's ear. So she's able to exercise power through the king, which is what she always wanted. Everything's hunky dory. Of course, it doesn't work out like that because, um, the faith militants are fundamentalists and they are, they start closing down all the brothels. They start closing down all the things that they deem as bad and they arrest Cersei herself for her incestuous relationship with her brother. Um, so, <laughs> so I mean, you can see because uh, well, and this is a point that I think we're going to be getting into because faith ha- tends to have this absolute point of view. Um, and especially when it becomes fundamental, like it, like is shown in Game of Thrones, it, it, you know, if you do have a sordid past, you're going to get fucked up. It's a very, it's a, it's a double edged sword, um, in a way, because Cersei gets quite, um, hurt by this, but, um, and eventually what happens is in order to, to maintain his authority and power, the king has to make himself one with the church. Because at this point now, the church has become so powerful. The High Sparrow has been put into place as High Septum because the old High Septum was found in a brothel, so he's dead. Um, the faith militant has now taken, you know, a very... Well, this is the interesting thing is the faith militant now has a portion of the coercive power of the state, which the king doesn't control. So now power and authority has been split between the king. What are those resources? What do they look like exactly? What? That the the church can access, the high septum can access. Oh, well, I mean, uh, firstly, I I think the the best resource that he can access is faith. Uh, So devotion of a huge amount of people, which is shown in the crowds that he's able to draw. So he can turn the city against the king basically at a moment's notice. Um, but obviously the other one is, is more tangible. So he's got the faith militant, which are actually, you know, people who are willing to fight and die for him. And he's got the wealth, uh, of the church behind him. So although you never really see him exercise the wealth because they live very, um, ascetic lives, uh, you know, as yeah. so, which is pretty, you know, good for them. But obviously if he wanted to, he could, like, I'm sure he could buy a boat. Or a siege engine. Or a dragon. You never know. Dragons. Ah. I don't know how much dragons cost. But, but yeah, so the only way for Tommen, which is, I think, it's never really told how it happened, but I think Marjorie probably worked it out because you see Tommen go in for a discussion with her and then he comes out and declares that from now on the, the, the crown and the church will rule as one. So he, he, kind of creates a religious state in the well i mean it's not really brought into that much detail but i would imagine that that's the kind of agreement that he's reached so he he becomes kind of a co-head of the church ruling by divine right and he manages to recombine these two things but with the church in much more power now 
I think I see it differently. I don't, I don't see as much overlap as you do. I think it's more of an, a, a political allegiance, um, an alliance that will, if one needs the other, then they're there for the support and and for it is particularly for um, people who are being ruled to recognise that they didn't that they weren't just answerable to the king, but they're also answerable to the the seven gods mm. um, and the church of the seven. So you and you couldn't you know you couldn't be claim you couldn't claim to be a religious person or devout. Um, without also paying your, without also heeding your, uh, what, what is it to give? What do you give to a king? You give your loyalty pledge. Yeah, without giving loyalty to the king. Yeah, but would you? I would say now at this point that the king has to acknowledge his rulership by divine right. So it's not that he is just given this divine right, but he must acknowledge that the church must also have a part in bestowing that divine right on him in Westeros at this point? I I, I don't remember. I, don't, I didn't see that. Um, so I don't think that... The, yeah, I'm just the, kind of drawing the, it. I'm just trying drawing the logical conclusion out from what I've seen on screen. Uh, no, I, no, I disagree. I, I, I don't get to that same logical end. See, because the only thing I can think of is, like, if if the king, if Tommen decided, like, you know what, fuck these guys... Um, I can't handle this. I, you know, I want, I want my power back. This is bullshit. I mean, he could just bring in his army, which, you know, he's got the Lannister army. Um, he's got the Tyrells army and he could just bring them in and just kill everybody. I think that would be possible. But obviously what would happen at that point would, I think, and this is, would be a huge detriment to his own legitimacy because you can't just go into a church and murder a whole bunch of people without, especially when the people in the city and we're talking about the base normal, you know, regular people have so much faith in that church at this point, he would probably have an open rebellion on his hands if he did that. Yes, he certainly elevated the status of the church and also the importance of devotion to the church. Mm. So that became, a, that became a critical part of citizenship. And I think this, this now raises an interesting question for us. As... But before we get to that question, uh, um, uh, we yeah. want to tell you about <laughs> a service that we are lucky enough to be sponsoring. Yeah. And, uh, it's something that, we, and we wouldn't be sponsoring it if, uh, if we didn't support and then use it ourselves. It's a service by Amazon. It's, uh, it's how they distribute their ebooks. Uh, sorry, the audible books. So, uh, there's, they do it through an app called Audible and Peter and I both use it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an app that you, you download in any portable device. You, once you have it installed, you have access and, and create an account. You have access to what's it, one hundred and eighty thousand or something? I think yeah, it's one hundred and eighty thousand uh, books, books on you know on there right now from from Amazon. They're yeah. all uh, available for you to listen to. Yeah. Um. Yeah. At a, at a small price, but uh, if you if you sign up now, if you sign up through our portal that they've created for us, then uh, you get one month free yep. and six free books. One month free and a, and a free audio book, uh, that, you know, you, it's just free. You can have it. And the, the other thing is, is that if you, I, do, I imagine that if you do the one month free subscription, you will immediately roll over to the paid subscription because it's just, you get one, one book every month. It's awesome. So you can just keep reading forever. And they have another thing is that if you don't like the book that you bought with your credit, then you just give it back. You get your credit back and you get, you can just do another book. So. It's, I mean, it's just the, one of the best ways to, you know, catch up on all the reading that you wanted to do. 
um, that you never really got around to. I mean, I tend to listen to these audiobooks on, you know, on my commute into work um, while I'm doing stuff around the house. And it's, it's some stuff that you kind of know that you should read, but never get around to actually reading. Um, so yeah, I mean, one of the recent ones I did was Das Kapital, um, which is, you know, one of Karl Marx's major works. And that's on Audible. It's, it's really good. It's well read. It's, it's well edited. I highly suggest it. Yeah, um, it, it's because of its bookmarking technology, it allows you to listen to several books at the same time. So I find it, you know, I don't just have to focus on my studies, for example. Yeah. I can also read things of leisure at the same time. I can read spiritual books um, and it keep, and can keep that going throughout the week. And, like, and it's just so convenient you can, uh, you know, it changes how much you get through. And you so can... So don't ignore it. If you want to sign up, um, go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash LOL. Yeah. If you go through that link, if you go through the forward slash LOL link, that just uh, gives us a small kickback, which allows us to keep running the podcast. And it helps so us out a huge amount, guys. So please go and at least go and look through that link so that we know that you're looking at stuff that we tell you to. Um, <laughs> and you could listen to the Bible, the Bible on Audible. So I don't know if that's, uh, you know, in your alley, but you could do that. <laughs> Let's get back yeah, to... Yeah, you're going to lots of stuff. <laughs> okay, so, so... Yeah. The, what is the question you wanted to ask? So now, because, I mean, like, when I look, when I watch Game of Thrones, when I watch that season, I was immediately struck by an issue that raised itself up for me was, okay, this is now a problem um, because you have... I mean, like, the thing is, is that I suppose in the world of Westeros, who gives a shit? Because uh, the king is not democratically elected, so Joffrey was a pretty terrible and tyrannical ruler. So if Joffrey decided at any point that he wanted to kill every single person who was homosexual, he would have been able to do that. Uh, so, you know, there's not much difference in a in a monarchy, an absolute monarchy where, you know, between rulership by the king or rulership by the church, you know, both are open to problems. But when we talk about our modern day period in democratic organizations, why, and I'd like your opinion on this because, and this is, you know, I'm, an, for those listening at home, I'm an atheist and Brock is a, is a Catholic. So we both have different opinions on this, but why is it important for us to have the separation of church and state? Well, the, the simple answer is to protect both of them from each other um, mm. because they're both so different. You you don't want... Um, the way that the modern state is developed is entirely secular. That's to say that the way that it runs its affairs um, is not the way... is is not religious and it doesn't pan it to any particular religious view or worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allows it to you know conduct its bureaucratic affairs very, um, in a very meritocratic style um, it allows impartiality. It allows fair judgment, um, and it basically enables the state to be very, you know, to be more efficient and to be fair. Whereas the you know, church um, or faith-based organization is uh, is beholden to, uh, to different principles, it's got a different worldview, it's got a different set of criteria upon which it bases it, it makes its decisions, and uh, enacts policy and carries out day-to-day life. You don't want those two to overlap because it can confuse the purpose of organize, of, you know, of running said organization. So if you're trying to organize a state, the point is to make sure that you represent all the views of all the people, mm. not necessarily to take all those people to heaven. Whereas if you're an, you know, a faith-based organization, you don't necessarily have to, it'd be a good idea to represent the views of everybody there, but it's the, it's more important to get everyone to heaven. 
Um, so because the because the the value systems are different, the way in which the affairs are conducted is different, and therefore it's important to, to keep them separate. However, my personal opinion is that this, that doesn't need to be taken to extremes. There, there's no reason to be absolutist in that. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is I don't think that as soon as someone says, I have a political opinion that's based on my faith and my understanding of how people are supposed to live, that that, that opinion is immediately moot or should be um, you know, or should be silenced because it's based on something um, that other people don't agree with or don't understand. Mm. Uh an example I like to use, you know, is like the you could pick. I don't know why is slavery bad or why should you know capital punishment be outlawed. Mm. Um, and if I choose to justify human equality or human life based on the fact that I think God gave it to us, um, doesn't mean that human life is invaluable. It just means that maybe you know I need to extend my argument a bit, but not that the argument shouldn't be made mm. just because you know it's uh, because I believe in God. Mm. And I think it's. I think that your point of view is is so necessary because I never consider the separation of church and state as a mechanism by which religion is protected. I only ever consider it from the point of view of protecting politics from religion. But now that yeah. you're now that you're saying it like that, I can totally see that if a state was Catholic, then you get you could easily get persecution of other religious groups, and if Absolutely. So, and so that's, I, I, and I imagine actually that's probably one of the underlying principles of why you had the separation of church and state in the first place was to mitigate that kind of conflict. And I don't know why I'm having this revelation at this point in my life, but, <laughs> you know. Probably because in, when, you know, when you study politics, it's, um, it's the sanct, you can almost call, say, call it the sanctity of the state mm. is so protected. It's so, um, it's so often reminded to us that the, no, that's poor English. Let's try that again. Mm. The <laughs> the sanctity of the state is so often repeated that we are reminded frequently of how not to interfere with it and how certain worldviews shouldn't be made to impose upon the state anyway. Mm. So it's not it's you know we we very seldom as political science students think about how the state intervene interfere in other affairs and be you know potential threats to other organizations but um to come back to something else you mentioned the when the united states formed this constitution does one of the founding fathers forgive me of my lack of knowledge of you know history in the united states um could have been jefferson who who had that very intention in mind that was quite aware of the power of the state and 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 as a christian he wanted to protect the church from the from the state so the, so the state couldn't say um, to someone, you know, you, you are forbidden from this particular religious practice. Um, you know, you, you can't wear a cross or you can't make the sign of the cross or something like that. Mm. As, a, as a Christian and as a politician, he felt that that was, that the separation was also in order to, was also necessary to protect the faith of, of the citizens. Mm. So it, so it goes both ways. Yeah. And, but I see, I like, okay. So I, I agree with absolutely everything you've said there. But see, from my thinking, there's a, so there's another level. And I would, I'd very much like to see what you think about this. And I, I need to phrase it very carefully. So, because human beings are, uh, we, we don't like gray areas when it comes to our belief systems. And so this is, this tends to uh, manifest itself more when we're talking about religious matters. But let's talk about gay rights, uh, for instance. Now, 
we have people on both sides of the arguments, uh, you know, for homosexuality, for and against, some religious and some not, also on both sides of the argument. So I'm not saying that religion is necessarily the driver against the anti-homosexuality side, because you will have, you have some people on the anti-homosexuality side who are arguing for the conservation of the family rather than from a religious standpoint. But that being said, I feel that religion tends to create a sense of absolutism that is stronger with face-based arguments than it is with other arguments. And my reason for saying that is, if depending on which holy script you're following. So, for instance, let's take the Bible. Um, and oh no, you know what? Let's take the uh, let's take the Game of Thrones example. So in in the Septum, you know, in the, 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 the Faith of the Seven, it is, you know, whatever their holy text is, it says homosexuality is bad. Don't do that. Um, now, the it seems that in King's Landing or in Westeros, there is no legal precept against homosexuality. It seems to be frowned on, but nobody really gives a shit. Now, it's, it's not illegal, yeah. Yeah. So now, which is, you know, that's pretty cool, pretty open for a medieval society. Um, well done, Westeros. Okay. Uh, <laughs> But as soon as the septum comes, as soon as the high sparrow becomes septum, he starts to reinforce the fundamentals of the religion and starts to persecute people who are homosexual. Now, do you think that there is a possibility that when you don't have the separation of church and state, so I'm imagining the, you know, the intervention of church ideas, and let's bring it back to our modern world now, like Christian ideas, into policy making in government that you that it tends to be a bit more fundamentalist and like Christians would say, look, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong, therefore we cannot legislate in favor of homosexuality. And that's the end of the story. Well that would be a crying shame. That's why there needs to be separation of church and state. That's those are the kind of weak, shallow arguments that can cost people's lives and can cost us the opportunity to show mercy and understanding. And uh you know, live in, in, in an equal society. If you just say, because a particular text describes that, that, that only some people, only part of the electorate and only part of the citizens believe in, should apply to all the citizens, despite their, you know, despite the decision to, to not believe in that text, then that would be partial, that would be partial and, uh, and it would be absolutist. It would be, it would, yeah, it would be a crying shame. That's not, that's just not the way that society should be run. Um, oh, so you're agreeing with me? Yeah, yeah. I thought we were going to have much uh, more very, of an argument about this. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't, I don't see that because, um, you know, as much as I believe that people, that, uh, it's good and healthy to have faith, it's not good and healthy to rely on faith alone. Um, you know, we also, we also work with reason and rationality and our logical capacities give us a, an enormous amount of ability, an enormous ability to, to govern societies mm. and we need to use that mm. so to just use faith would just be unfounded it would be silly like you know giving ourselves um one arm to do you know full day's work oh okay i mean um, yeah and that's i mean that's what that's why really my understanding and i'm you know obviously that's changing now i think it's it's good that we've had this discussion because it's really brought the two sides of why the separation of church and state is necessary. There is a secular reason, which I think is really fundamental in my head of not allowing religious practice into the policymaking process. But there's also a faith-based reason of protecting the church from those policymakers as well, um, which is really interesting. And, uh, you know, it, as you say, I think, but obviously, I mean, you, you, it, there is a difficulty in escaping some religious aspects in 
in the state or in government, because if you have policymakers that are religious in and of themselves, that will tend to have an effect. Yes, it, it would have an effect, but I think that effect should not be frowned upon. It shouldn't be castigated in the operations of the state. It should be acknowledged. It should be aware. Of, uh, you know, people should be aware of the the basis of an argument. Um, but it shouldn't just be. It shouldn't be outlawed or silenced mm. because that's one that's one person's view. As long as everybody knows where all their views come from and that views that that claim to be secular are prioritized above those that that, that seem not to be, mm. then uh, I think that would be again the same kind of partiality as saying that you know the society should be governed based on this text of based on a particular religious text. Mm. So now to take this one step further, because I was expecting much more of an argument, so we've got a bit of time. <laughs> um, <laughs> To, to take this one step further, do you think that the uh, separation of church and state can go too far? Like, do you think that we that's can become too secular? That's a good question. I think that's a question we need to... That's, um, that's, that's a really good question, especially for one society. I, can't, I don't know how to bring it back to Game of Thrones um, because we don't see in that show the, the Church of the Seven or any, or any of the particular religions being... Um, being pushed away so far from society yeah. that, that, it's, that it's shunned. I don't think there are um, any atheists you know, just... in Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I don't. I don't think so. But um, <laughs> but it, it seems to be a, you know part of public life there, and uh, so I don't. You know, we don't get an opportunity to discuss whether the separation of church and state in Westeros can go too far. But in, in our world, um, I think there are certain. Yes, I think there are certain um, practices or belief systems. That prioritize views that, that are claimed to be secular above those that seem, you know, more faith based. Yeah. So in other words, I think that people's views can, can be shunned mm. and people, and, and because their views are shunned, you know, in, in, in worst case scenarios, that means that the particular people are, are degraded and, you know, they become sort of de facto second class citizens mm. because they have faith. Um, you, in, uh, in, in certain, Outrageous policies, like I, th- I think it was in Italy, where they they try to ban public displays of of the cross in you know, in, in public schools. Sweden, um, it, Sweden. I'm, I'm pretty sure it happened temporarily in Italy. There was such a strong pushback; it didn't last very long. Yeah. Um, look, the, I think there's a, there's you know those kinds of policies should be debated. It shouldn't just be like, uh, mm. oh no, we, the crosses are there and they're there to stay forever. No, we can talk about it, mm. but to just blanket ban it to say absolutely. You know, absolute um, separation. There's zero recognition of um, public displays of religion in, in our society. I think that would be going too far. Because, as, like I said earlier, as much as we have um, our our logical capacities and ability to reason, we also have faith. Mm. And some people, you know, m- might choose to prioritize one over the other. Um, but I don't think it's good to just lose either one of them entirely. To just say that one uh, that, that that faith is just it's unfounded. And because it's and because it's not secular, it doesn't have a place in public life. It doesn't mm. have a place in society. That would be fascist. Mm. Yeah, and I, I I agree. I mean, I would imagine that you know, in fact, it would be cool to do a poll on this. But I would imagine that the majority of our listeners are either probably atheist or at least agnostic. I, you know, I would doubt very much that many of our listeners would be very religious. Um, and you get the internet. I know the strongly worded atheist online who uh, is very disparaging of uh, religion and, you know, very quick to call people who are religious, uh, I don't know, primitive and 
it's you know fanatics. fanatics and all of that. But there is a point, and I agree with you, where secularism be, becomes a point at which we start to you know start to encroach on people's fundamental rights of expression, and you know the the right you know the, the religious freedom is not is is a, is a right of expression. It's the it's the right of being able to define your universe as you wish to define it, which I think is a fundamental human right. The ability to say like, well, you know, this is what I believe and this is what I don't believe. But there's an interesting point raised by Richard Dawkins in The God's Illusion, which is something that not many people, uh, not many atheists bring up, is this idea of agnosticism, where, you know, Richard Dawkins has been quoted as saying that, uh, you know, an agnostic is just a poor man's atheist, as somebody who's not willing to take a stand. But you, on these issues of metaphysics, you, you can't take a stand. You cannot say that God does or does not exist. Not even well, any you know, intelligent religious person would tell you that I cannot prove that God exists because it's a matter of faith. The fact that if you say God does not exist or your religion is wrong, if you say that absolutely, you are also making a faith statement. You are saying that you know something that is inherently unknowable. So that's, and I think that's what happens a lot with secularists who say, you know, we must remove all aspects of religiosity from our schools and from our public life because God does not exist. You, you can't necessarily say that. And I know that recently there's been a debate. It's not even a debate. It's such a silly argument going on in France at the moment, which is the banning of the, what they're calling the, bur- mm-hmm. the burkini, uh, which is, you know, the burqa as swimwear on beaches. Um, and on one side, I mean, I'm, I myself get stuck on this because on one side, the full burqa, which is, um, uh, I forget the name of it, but the one that covers all parts of your body, um, is a security risk at the moment, especially in France where you're seeing a rise in terrorist activities and something that needs to be taken into account. But, when you start bringing that in and saying that girls cannot wear the hajib, which is just what uh, Indonesian girls tend to wear, which is just the scarf around the head, and a lot of girls in South Africa and Africa tend to wear, you know, just a scarf, that's not a security risk. That's just a, you know, you're wearing a, a scarf around your head. The face is very clearly visible. Um, of course, you know, you could make the claim that, well, you know, the clothes tend to be baggier, so, you know, there's more risk of hiding explosives. But that argument could be made with any form of clothing. You know, anybody wearing the 90s fucking baggy pants. <laughs> yes, that's, you know, that's possible. So so I, I think that that's when secularism gets taken too far, that if, you know, I'm being told that I cannot wear something um, because it is it's not infringing on anybody else's rights. And I think that that's where we have to lean back on the, you know, the more liberal uh, philosophical stance that as long as what I am doing is not infringing on the rights and liberties of other people, you should be allowed to do it. And obviously that itself can be taken too far. But I think that that's, I agree with you completely, but from a more, from an atheist perspective as well. <laughs> the the issues around security threats and risks in France and Europe, you know, with the uh, with the threat of terrorism, is um, is it? Uh, it's a it's a tricky, it's a frustrating debate. It's something that we're having to deal with, I think, globally. 
Mm. Um, and it's, I don't, I don't really want to talk about it in this podcast. Is this too much? Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that's leading too in. much to talk about, and it's, it's too sensitive as well. Yeah, we'll probably get into um, another but, podcast on terrorism at another point, but maybe when. Yeah, yeah, and, and maybe, and maybe, um, you know, blanket bans or how terrorism is being addressed by public and security policy. But for this, um, I'd rather say now that the the way that, that some secularists or some um, atheists can use secularity and separation of church and state as an argument has become somewhat of a religion in itself. Yeah. Secularism is no longer used as a policy means. Mm. It's seen as a policy end. Mm. It's like you are that, um, that as long as the church exists, and as long as the church acts publicly, then, you know, that's a, that's a harm. It's a damage done to secularity. Mm. But that's, that was never meant to be the, um, that was never meant to be the modus operandi of mm. secularism. It was meant to protect the, the public officers uh, from being held by individuals of the faith and ruling according to their faith principles as if they were running a faith-based organization. Mm-hmm. Um, that was meant to be the end of it. Was to make it was just to protect the you know certain influences because you don't want one portion of the electorate being prioritized above the other. Absolutely, um, which makes complete sense. And it's it, it's just it's so logical. It seems you know it seems silly to have to repeat that argument. But we, but to say thing to take to use that as a defense to say, uh, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to make the sign of the cross in public or praying in public is an offense because it prioritizes your religion over other people's, especially over people who don't believe at all. But that's, you know, that that was never meant to be the separation of church and state. That was never meant. We were never meant to um, stop people from uh, practicing their their faith publicly, mm. pr- provided you know, it, like you say, it doesn't infringe on anybody else's. Um, Right. Yeah. And I think if, you, if you're going to be a secularist, uh, which I am, and you're going to be an atheist, which I am, it, I mean, it, that's great. But at the end of the day, you need to then fall back on rational principles. You need to ask yourself the question, is this doing any harm? If no harm is being done then, you know, knock yourself out. Do what you want. There's no reason yeah. to stop uh, somebody from displaying a Christmas tree at Christmas um, if it's, you know, if you feel personally offended by that, well, that's your right to feel personally offended. But in a world that we have free speech, unfortunately, you're going to feel offended every now and then. Uh, your, you feeling offense is not reason enough to call, to stop something from happening. Offense is not harm. Um, so, you know, just because you feel offended by something doesn't mean that you, you, you get to make changes to society. And, you know, that being said as well, the human mind is, is prone to be faith-based. Um, you know, the largest, the largest conflict that killed the most amount of people in the world to date was between fascism and communism, both of which were secularist ideologies. And I, I, you know, you will find some of the most heated debates in the world and some of the most irrational debates between neoliberalists and communists who are just fucking insane on both sides, neither of which are religious. Um, uh, that's right. That's what I said. You fucking neoliberalist communist. <laughs> um, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I've seen a few of those debates and, um, well, let's put this in the context. I've also seen, some religious debates that I thought couldn't, you know, you couldn't get more heated than that until, until you see two secularists from opposite ends of the ideological spectrum going at it. Yeah. And that's when you know, okay, maybe, uh, you know, 
Maybe arguments between religions aren't that, aren't that bad. Because human beings are designed to take a very firm stance. We don't like gray areas. And, um, you know, on one, on one side, it's protected us as a species, but on the other side, it tends to create some real problems, i.e. the Second yeah. World War. Um, and I just, I have to appreciate that those problems are so well um, manifested in the, you know, in the show at Game of Thrones. When you, when you see King Tommen announce the allegiance between the crown and the church, it just, um, you can see the potential. You can see, you know, how the High Sparrow led him there, how the High Sparrow formed that friendship and that bond. Absolutely. Um, and how, and how King Tommen as a youngster, you know, enjoys the spiritual enlightenment that he gains from that bond. Mm. Mm. Um, and sees there's something necessary for the people that he rules. You also can't help but see all the problems that are going to come out of that, given that his, you know, that the church had imprisoned his mother and his wife. Absolutely. Um, and and you know, publicly humiliated his mother in one of the worst, you know, one of the most gruesome scenes of the, yeah. of the show, and was about to do the same to his wife as well. And um, so it was it was diff- it was a difficult concept to uh, it was a difficult allegiance to accept, um, and to witness. You could see the problems. Um, of that grayness coming out. Yeah. Like that time and what's interesting is that you could theoretically you could reshoot that whole season and replace the uh, you replace the character of the High Sparrow with I don't know, Lenin. Um, turn the turn the sparrows into, you know, hardcore Marxists and have Cersei as a capitalist and um, you would have exactly the same <laughs> thing play out. Um, maybe not yeah, I don't know, maybe not the whole shame thing down the street <laughs> but i don't know Lennon probably would have done something like that <laughs> but you know absolutely thanks for listening guys we hope you enjoyed that if you did not access this via our website landsofleviathan.com then please visit the site to find other materials such as all of our other acos tracks and articles and if you'd like any updates on the website please don't be shy to subscribe to our rss feed that is also there we also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback so send us an email at landsofleviathan.com at gmail.com. It's L-A-N-D-S-O-F-L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N. And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast. And if you didn't listen to that directly, then you can find it on Acast or any Acast supporting app such as iTunes. Hope you enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much.